Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 11. And we'll commit this time in a short prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, and we've seen two little children go out to learn about thy word as well, we pray for those little children that the word that are taught them will sing deep into their heart, soul, and minds, that you will protect them from the evil one and bring them to a saving knowledge of thee at an early age. But for us now, as we look at this portion of your scripture, we thank you for what we read in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we thank you that as for Christians, your word is our only and final authority in all things that pertain to life. So we pray if anyone is here this morning that know thee not, May your spirit speak to them, melt their hearts, and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus before it's too late. And so we commit this time to thee now and ask for thy blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are many questions the book of Genesis sets out to answer in the first 11 chapters. We learn how God created the universe in six 24-hour days, around six and a half thousand years ago. We learn how we got here, and we learn how evil entered the world. We learn why God destroyed the world in a flood, and how we ended up speaking different languages in different countries. You may wonder how the whole world could speak one language in Genesis 11 because we'd read Genesis 10 and it tells us that the whole earth was divided into tribes and nations, each with its own languages from the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. So chronologically, the Tower of Babel story really comes before the scattering of the nations in chapter 10. But Moses reversed the order to emphasize the cost of rebelling against God. The cost of rebelling against God. We're supposed to come to the end of Genesis 10 and ask the question, how did the world become so hopelessly divided? And Genesis 11 answers that question for us. The man behind this effort to build a tower was Nimrod, who was a descendant of Ham, Noah's son. And in chapter 10, verse 10, we are told that Nimrod had a kingdom. And if you look there, the first kingdom that he had was called Babel. Up to this time, he seems to be the first ruler and dictator in history. He made himself a one-world ruler. He was the first Hitler or Saddam Hussein in history, if you like. And the name Nimrod means, we shall rebel. We shall rebel. And Genesis 10.9 says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the word before literally means he was against God, not for him. He was a mighty hunter against God, and he was a man in defiance of everything that God said. He wasn't a hunter for animals, he was a hunter for the souls of men. He was a rebel against God and tried to turn those he ruled over and away from God as well, just like many are trying to do today. 
So here was a tower, but it was more than a tower. It was a massive, united effort to bring humanity together, wholly apart from God. And the builders of the towers had two purposes in mind, which we can read in verse 4, to make a name for themselves and that they might not be scattered throughout the earth. And so firstly, let's have a look at, uh, at, at those two purposes that they had in mind. Let us make, well, we'll read verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. It's the same temptation here that Eve fell into in the garden. She believed that she had a chance too to be like God. So she too ignored God's commands. And we know the rest of the story. It's the same rebellious story we we hear repeatedly in the Bible and in our own day. There's enormous pride out there that motivates these kinds of decisions. It's a belief that we know better than God does what's actually best for us. And there are many out there today planning what's best for us as well. We read the stories of those who embrace that mindset, don't we, in Scripture. The Bible tells us in Daniel 4 that King Nebuchadnezzar became proud over the kingdom that he'd built. And uh, it says this, what King Nebuchadnezzar said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And so God sent him out to graze for seven years, didn't he? God inflicted upon him what's known as boanthropy, where he lived like an animal for seven years. And it's still known today. People have had it in the last 100 years. Not many, but it is out there. And in the book of Acts, chapter 12, we read the story, don't we, of King Agrippa. The people praised Herod as a god, and he didn't reject their statement. He accepted it. And apparently he believed what they were saying, and we are told he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was eaten by worms and died. J.I. Packer calls this passage in Genesis 11 a mirror of the modern world. A mirror of the modern world. It reveals to us what we might call the power game. The power game that was held in Davos in Switzerland just a couple of weeks ago. The power game in what to do throughout our world. By the rich and the powerful were the only ones that met there. The Tower of Babel was an ancient power game as well for people who felt the inner need to be number one in the world. They wanted a name, they wanted security, and they thought the Tower would give them both things that they desired. We live in a world, don't we, that exalts the the exceptional, the biggest, the fastest, the smartest, the richest. We all want to be best if we can, don't we? And that's why the Guinness Book of Records is such a good selling book at Christmas time, showing the best and the powerful and the richest throughout the world. We also see, don't we, gender selection. Researchers are working on a way to control what sex of a baby you'll have. 
People write in their wills now, the very wealthy, for their bodies to be frozen in the hope that uh, they can be unfrozen one day and restored to life when science has found that uh, ability to do that. Drugs that address one problem create others, doesn't it? I don't know whether you notice it, but whenever you open a, a box of tablets, you take out the leaflet and then you read uh, the possible side effects. And they're about 10 times more than what you've already got. And it makes you wonder whether you really ought to be taking them. But we take them anyway, don't we? And then we have electronic devices that now monopolise our lives. And they destroy our social interaction, don't they? In addition to our families. There are devices and programmes that track your movements. Things that were meant to help us are now being used to control us. Scammers are constantly working on new ways to steal from you. I had one a couple of weeks ago. They wanted me to invest. I thought, I'll talk to him. On the My wife keeps telling me, just hang up, just hang up. It's a salesman. But being a salesman in the past, I like to give them a little bit of leeway because I know what it's like to have the phone slammed down on you all the time. And so I was chatting to him and he said, oh, there's 14% interest now if you buy art off us. It's far bigger than what you'll get off the bank. And don't worry, your money won't be lost. Because he said, I don't earn anything until you earn something. So if you'd like to you know, start off with about £10,000 and something like that, we can get the ball rolling from you. But when he found out he wasn't getting nowhere, he hung up on me then. But it was a scam. And they continually do it because they know a certain number of people will fall for it. They are constantly there. We've developed, haven't we, weapons of mass destruction now. And on one, with one person on a very bad day could start a war that could destroy all of us. I don't know whether you can remember, but President Trump one day went to North Korea to meet with um, Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of Korea. And during that conversation, Kim Jong-un wanted to remind President Trump that he had a red button. And President Trump said to him, well, I have a red button as well. It's bigger than yours and it works. <laughs> and so that ended that conversation. But all you need is one person like that. And who knows? So we are technologically savvy, but today we are morally corrupt, aren't we? Or bankrupt, should I say. And this is what God was delaying at Babel the inevitable arrogance of man. Human pride, it's a tricky thing, isn't it? Pride is what made Lucifer rebel against God in the first place. In Isaiah 14, we read about the fall of Lucifer. Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Pride, isn't it? Created angel, but he wanted to be above his maker. And pride, as we said earlier, was the original sin in the garden when uh, the devil uh, lied to Eve by saying, 
God knows that in the day you, you eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate also. You know, ambition isn't wrong. Competition isn't wrong. Winning isn't wrong. Being the best isn't wrong. But it's never entirely innocent either, is it? As one commentator says, sin always lurks in the neighborhood somewhere. Sin always lurks in the neighborhood somewhere. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 19 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When you've got money or power or prestige or fame or friends in high places, you think you don't need God. And people will say that to you. What do I want your God for? I've got everything. But when you're broke and your power is gone, your friends won't return your phone calls, you're on your knees crying out to the Lord for mercy. And you many of those people who lose everything then hit the bottle or they'll then go into drugs and some even commit suicide when they've lost it all because that's all they lived for. Life is hard without God. You end up doing desperate things like building towers that reach into the heavens. Arrogance makes men think that they're invincible and that's why God stopped the building program and confounded their language. No one understood a thing the others were saying, and soon that massive building program screamed to a halt. And that's how we got so many different languages today. And then the Lord scattered them across the face of the earth. I'd done a bit of a Google research, and I've just found out that there's just under 7,000 different languages in our pla around our world. So the Bible translators got a huge amount of work to do, haven't they? Over just under 7,000 languages. It's amazing, isn't it? But here's the ultimate irony. They built the tower so they wouldn't be scattered, and they ended up scattered anyway. They built the tower to reach the heavens, but God had to come down to see how far they'd come up. He came to expect what they were building. And Psalm 2 verse 4 reminds us, that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. How true that is. And so God judges all human efforts that leaves him out of the equation. He brings down the high and mighty with a great big thud. And if you know your history, he's done it many times throughout history. And so you can write, write over this story these words from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, <clears throat> to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. He looks after those who build for him. The psalmist knew that work could never give man the rest and peace for which he toiled for, but only trusting in that which God would provide would give you everlasting peace in this world. 
And isn't this what the people of Babylon needed to understand? Human endeavor is never satisfying, never fully fulfilling. Only work which is done for the Lord and in his strength brings lasting satisfaction. You know, every generation builds its own towers. The famous temple of Marduk in Babylon called Entomenanki was about 300 feet tall. And as people approached the city, they could see this marvel of architecture towering above the rest of the city. Men like to build their towers and say, look at us. Go to London. You'll see the shard in nearly every picture of London, this massive tower that's been built. Look at us. The One World Trade Center in New York. Look at us. Look what man can do. The Eiffel Tower in Paris. You know, the tallest building in the world is called the Burj Khalafi in Dubai. It's 830 meters high. That's 2,722 feet. Who likes in that? It's 164 stories. And they're saying, look at us, because that's all they're doing out there at the moment, is trying to build the biggest building, aren't they? Look at us. Or you've got the mega corporations like Johnson & Johnson, HSBC, Pfizer, Moderna, Bill and Linda Gates Foundation, or the megachurch often say the same things. We will make a name for ourselves. Just look how great we are. You know, in 1715, Louis XIV of France died, <clears throat> and he called himself Louis the Great. And he was famous for his brash statement, I am the state. In other words, he's a dictator. His court was the most lavish in Europe, and his funeral was to be the most expensive of its day and spectacular. And his body lay in a gold coffin. And to dramatize his greatness, orders had been given that the cathedral should be dimly lit with a special candle set above the coffin. And then thousand wait, thousands waited in hushed silence as the service was about to begin. And Bishop Massillon began to speak. As he began to speak, he slowly reached down. He snuffed out the candle above the coffin, saying, only God is great. And that was the end of Louis Fourteenth. We're all tempted, aren't we, to build monuments to ourselves, such as prestigious titles, impressive assets, a business, or anything we do to try and impress people. But the Bible tells us, doesn't it, what shall it profit you if you build a mighty tower with your life and lose your own soul in the process? If you can have Babel with all its power games, its moral degeneration, its paranoia, its loneliness, its despair and deceptive pleasure, or you can have Jesus Christ, who alone can give you fullness of life and peace in an unpeaceful world. Those are the only choices of life. You can, you can have Babel and hell, or you can have Jesus and heaven. You know, when the London Daily Mail asked one day, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back a simple answer. He said, dear sir, I am. He was a wonderful Christian, and he was right with those words. 
The spirit of Babel isn't just out there. It's inside all of us, all of the time, waiting to get out. Secondly, I want us to consider this, that man's plans will never frustrate God's purposes. Man's plans will never frustrate God's purposes. A life lived in resistance to the revealed will of God will end in frustration and failure. No one can, re- no one can succeed at, 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 at uh, resisting or fighting God. It's an impossible battle to win. On July the 20th, 1969, on landing on the moon, the Apollo 11 commander and moonwalker, Neil Armstrong, said this, Just one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. When man's ingenuity was successfully engaged to overcome the many barriers to reaching the moon's surface, man felt then that there was no problem beyond a human solution in which in what we can do. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. I don't know whether you know him, but he's a man called Elon Musk. He's the second richest person on the planet. And one of his businesses is called SpaceX. And he's now planning to take people to Mars because he's saying now he has the technology to get you to Mars. Now, there's some, I read up that there's something out there called a nuclear thermal rocket. And this rocket can travel at seven miles per second. It can get you to Mars in 90 days. So that's pretty good going, isn't it? At seven miles a second. To reach the nearest star uh, to our planet, not the furthest away, but the nearest star called Alpha Centauri, it would take that rocket 11,500 years at seven miles a second to reach the nearest star. I'll let you do the maths. It's too big for me, that one. But God is humbling us, isn't it? He says, you can't reach me through your own efforts. Even heaven, the highest of heavens, cannot contain me. I always find that passage absolutely amazing when he says, you can't flee from his presence anywhere in the universe. He is everywhere. Nothing can contain him. And yet we learn at Christmas he became a speck inside a woman's womb. The God with whom the whole universe cannot contain. It's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely amazing, the Christmas story. So God was humbling them at Babel. He came down to see this puny little tower that they were building. I don't know whether you've heard, but Klaus Schwab, the globalist founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, is trying to bring in a new world order, just like Nimrod was doing in our passage here. And uh, there's this saying uh, that's there, that's out there, that's on their web as well. And he's saying this, you will own nothing and you will be happy. He says, you will own nothing and you will be happy. You'd think, wouldn't you, that if we would own nothing and be happy, that he'd lead by example, wouldn't you? But instead he's rolling, obviously, in his luxuries and stuff like that. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ come. As a man, he owned nothing. But as God, he owns everything in the whole universe. And he led by example. He's the one to follow. The man, 
the God-man who gives us an example. And concerning the plans of proud man, the Bible says in Proverbs 19, verse 21, there are many plans in a man's heart, but it's the counsel of the Lord that will stand. And in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. He is sovereign and in control of everything. And these verses are a commentary on Genesis 11, 1 to 9, where we find proud man planning to defeat the purposes of God. But God effortlessly confuses their language and their ambitions and plans are now all scattered and laid themselves to waste. And this teaches us that when proud man sets themselves up against the sovereign God, God always wins. God's You cannot frustrate God's purposes. He said, didn't he? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's God's ark is going along very well at this time. And thirdly, I want us to look at take care how you build also and me because God will inspect our work also. In verse 11, chapter 11, verse 5, we read, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. He inspected their work. He will inspect your work and mine also. And we need to build our faith with that in view. And I'm talking here about the motive behind your service for the Lord. God looks on our hearts. He's concerned about why you do what you do. Is it to gain the praise of men, or is it to meet your own needs, or is it all to honour and to glorify him? The question isn't what does your work look like from the outside. I'm sure the tower they built in Babylon was the most impressive thing on the face of the earth on that day. And there are many works for, for God in our day that seem quite impressive. The question is, what does God see? Calvin said this, we, we never truly glory in God unless we have utterly put off our own glory. We never truly glory in God unless we have utterly put off our own glory. Or on the other hand, we must hold this as a universal principle. Whoever glories in himself glorifies against God, end quote. You know, if you're not growing in humility, you're not growing as a Christian, Since the pride is the root of sin, of all sins, humility is the chief virtue of the Christian life. Since the original temptation in the garden, Satan has been active in trying to get us to exalt ourselves against God. It's flooded also into the church in a day under the banner of building our self-esteem rather than glorify God. And if you ask, how do I grow in humility? C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. Get a clearer picture of the greatness of God in his holiness and get a more accurate view of the depths of your own sinfulness. And fourthly, I want us to consider, make sure that your hope for heaven is based only on God's grace through through the cross of Christ not on anything in yourself. Make sure that your hope for heaven is based only on God's grace through the cross of Christ 
not on anything of yourself. You know, man's religion always seeks to reach God through human effort so that man can boast in his standing before God because he's at a part in his salvation. But biblical Christianity says in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, friends, the cross of Christ strips us of our pride and puts all our hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He alone is the saviour of the world. And if you don't want God as your enemy this morning, if you're not a Christian, then you need to humble yourself under his mighty hand, confessing your sin, forsaking all trust in yourself or your own efforts, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And in concluding uh, this morning, if you're not a Christian, there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. You know, I saw a very sad headline the other day that said, unhappiness soars in Britain. Unhappiness soars in Britain. And apparently, especially between young women and children, it's absolutely soaring. You know what those people need and what everyone needs who do not Christ is Christ can solve that problem of unhappiness. In Matthew 11, he reminds us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. If you're tired of building castles in the sand only to see them washed away by the tides of life, then you need to come to Jesus. If you're weary of trying and failing to be the master of your circumstances that fail, then you need to come to Jesus. If you're burdened with the pressure of trying to be all things to all people all of the time, and if you fail to meet your own expectations, much less anyone else's, then you need to come to Jesus. And here's a word for frustrated tower builders everywhere. If you're tired of your life and want something better, then you need to come to Jesus. All that a hungry heart truly seeks is found in him and in him alone. By his death on the cross, our sins are forgiven. By his resurrection, we are given a new life in him. Do you know him this morning? Has your heart been changed by his mighty power? Because he's the firm foundation, the cornerstone that can never be shaken in your life. Build your life on Jesus Christ and you will never be disappointed. And like what's happening in our country today, unhappiness is soaring in Britain. It needs us out there sharing the gospel with these people where the Lord gives us that opportunity. They should see in our lives that we have a hope that they have not got. And we do, don't we? And if you are a Christian this morning, the command to go and multiply still stands. Jesus, as he told the descendants of Noah to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth, Jesus has instructed us too in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make the disciples of all men, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. You know, God doesn't want us just to gather in holy huddles on a Sunday and congratulate each other on being part of the kingdom of heaven. He instructs you and I also to scatter and proclaim the message of the gospel to anyone 
who will listen. And we need to pray for those opportunities to share that with neighbours and friends and family. In 2001, London's Tate Modern Gallery exhibited a piece of art created by Brazilian artist Sildo Mayorelis. It was a giant tower made up of hundreds of second-hand radios. Each radio was turned on and tuned in to a different radio station. So you can imagine the noise coming from that tower of radios. The archers, sport, pop, the weather, the news, classical music, all blaring out at the same time, creating a harsh sound of confusing information, voices and music. And Myles called the sculpture Babel. His title is appropriate because at the original Tower of Babel, God frustrated humanity's attempt, didn't he, to seize heaven by confusing mankind's language. And no longer able to communicate with one another, humanity spread into tribes of various dialects throughout the land. And divided by language, we've struggled to understand each other ever since, haven't we? But there's a second part to the story. We reminded this coming a day when the languages will once again be one. They won't come about because of the government or of the ruling of the high court or due to the innovation of Google, Apple or Amazon. It will be the work of the Spirit of God making us one. You know, when the Holy Spirit came upon the first Christians at Pentecost, he enabled them to praise God in the various languages of those visiting Jerusalem that day. And through this miracle, everyone heard the same message, no matter the nationality or language. The confusion of Babel was, Babel was reversed at Pentecost. They were all speaking in different languages, but God had given them the ability to interpret them all. So everybody heard them speaking in their own language even though they were all speaking different languages, or a lot of them. Babel was reversed at Pentecost. And in a world of ethnic and cultured, cultural division, this is good news, because through Jesus Christ, God is forming again, isn't he? A new humanity from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So can you just imagine uh, the shock in that gallery uh, if all of those radios in the Tate Modern suddenly turn to a new signal and all play in the same song at once uh, to everyone in that room. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That will be one of the features of heaven. Our praise of him with one voice. I know a lady that said if they don't speak it Welsh in heaven, she's not going. She was certain that the language of heaven was going to be Welsh. Well, Welsh will be one of the languages of heaven, but it'll only be one of them. A people from every nation, tribe and tongue, aren't we? Under 7,000 different languages. 
will be there, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Paul wrote that in that day, we will be united in our worship to our, our wonderful God. The distractions, the detours, and all the bright ideas will give way to the worship and the honour of the one who alone is true and faithful. The one to whom, if you're a Christian this morning, we owe our lives and the joyful obedience of grateful hearts of the one who drew us out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ. And on that day, we will lift our voices as one and praise him. But until then, we sing his praises as a prelude to that great and glorious day. And thinking that on that day, around 7,000 different languages in one accord will sing our next song, "'Tis finished, the Messiah dies." What a day that's going to be when we're all united in Christ and one with each other. Neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female, we shall all be truly one in him. And I hope that you will all be there. Amen.